welcome back to Permaculture Tonight. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I, I know I probably will never meet you all face to face, but I just want to express during this holiday season that I really appreciate you listening and I appreciate you doing. The actions you take in your life will affect generations and affect the earth for thousands of years. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We thank you. So today we have someone who is on that higher level track, someone who is working on the highest level of permaculture where they're focusing less and less on things like plastic. They're focused on creating resilient systems that take barely any work and pairing with animals in new ways that seem like magic, seem like out of our dreams, but they're real. And what we need to do is check out people like Masanuba Fukuoka and Sepp Holzer and see the examples of their work because there is amazing, amazing things happening. And we all can learn something from them and their example. And one of those people that has learned a lot from Sepp Holzer, and who's bringing it home, spreading it all around the world, is Zach Weiss. And he has become the first certificated Sepp Holzer designer or practitioner, depending on how you, you, know, you think about these things. He is the first, and he's the only English-speaking one, and he has a lot to say. So let's get right to it and hear from Zach. It's tough for me to grasp. I can understand it fairly well, depending on context, um, but... As far as speaking it, good luck. <laughs> ha. So did you always have a translator um, when you when you went and worked with uh, with, with Seth Holter? Um, most of the time, like 90% of the time. I mean, most of the time it's as part of a workshop. So we have translators for the workshop and the translators will help after and before the workshop and off hours of the workshop. Um, but more recently, it's been working with them and, you know, I understand well enough in German to be able to do the work. Um, but as far as being conversational, not so much. That's really cool. So, um, so okay, so you learned in workshops. That sounds very traditional. Um, how big were the workshops? Were they more than 20 people or were they small? Uh, some of them were as big as, I don't know, 100 people. Wow. Um, for the most part, they're 20 to 30 people. Um, sometimes over in Austria, I mean, there'll be like 18 people, 19 people, but 20 to 30 for the most part, a couple of ones with 50 people and then one with a hundred, 120. So how many people are getting certified through him and how many hours does it take and, and, and how is it different from the PDC, um, route, uh, route? I mean, basically, no one's getting certified from them. There's no, there's no path to it. There is the, there's the program at the Kramerhof where you go there, and you spend, I think it's two weekends a month throughout the whole growing season, 
And that's the certification that Zepp used to do. Now Zepp is at his new farm. Yosef still does that same certification, um, but Zepp is not actively doing any current certification. There's still certification programs in Russia from people that he's trained, essentially, I believe. Uh, and as far as, I mean, it's not a certain amount of hours. It's not a certain amount of things. It's like, even when I, I mean, I've worked with him all over the place. He's been really impressed. One time he told me, keep doing what I'm doing and I'll be the president. But he still wasn't going to give me certification until he saw all of the projects. I presented maybe four or five of the projects that I did this year to him. And at the end of that, it was like, okay, you're good enough. I'll make you, I'll give you certification. So it's not something that I would recommend upon anyone to try and do because it's exceedingly difficult. Well, that actually sounds um, marvelous. The fact that you had to have real projects that you had put into place, you know. And, I mean, you, you have a lot of experience at this point. I think probably more experience than 99% of the people that consider themselves permacultures, I would say. Um, and so, you're, that's so cool that he, that he kept the bar that high. And I really think we need that. I mean, I'm waiting for like, you know, like a more graduate sort of style program to come out. I mean, we have Eric Olson's. I think Ben Falk is doing something, and I know Jeff is doing something. But uh, the real, the natural farming, the Holtzerian methods, uh, I, I those are what I gravitated to first because they're the kind of things that everyone can do, regardless of economic um, entry. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's really experience and practice based. So it really gets people, it's pretty easy to sit back in an armchair and theorize for hours and hours, but the Holzer approach is to really do it with the landscape. And then it's a process of intuitive manifestation, really. Um, and so it's, you know, it's distinctly different. It's very different in terms of approach and strategy. I think it's also more difficult to learn, but at the same time, easier to learn you're just learning in a different context. You're learning from the landscape and from the things you're interacting with rather than in a like textbook, school-style type of learning. Right, and to that effect, um, I saw this Facebook post where you share that you use crabs to find water. So maybe you yeah. can share with us that experience. Because that, I mean, that's like beyond that's kind of beyond the textbook i mean that's beyond uh, like what we would consider normal permaculture that's not a scientific method kind of thing that's like really just using nature around you to to teach you about itself oh absolutely and working with nature i mean it's always that's what really gravitated me towards the holzer approach too is it's just it's fundamentally rooted in working with nature Everything else comes secondary, you know, all the thoughts, all the, everything else that goes into it. And so the, the crab was a really cool story. Uh, we were casing a spring, and so it's, you know, it was a very clay spot and a clay layer where the water is coming up out of the ground. And so we're casing it for drinking water. And so what you do is, you, and you have to be very careful. I wouldn't recommend someone without experience tries to do this because you can destroy springs but you very carefully follow the water back to the point where it's coming out in between the B and C horizons where you want to capture it and keep it really pure and pristine because that's basically the gift from the earth, the, the charged, mineralized, 
energized water that's the most pristine drinking water people can be drinking and what we drank for you know thousands of years um but so we i started getting into there and it was it was much different than the usual spring because it was just a hollowed out core in clay and it's, you know, it's kind of unnerving because that's something, usually the water is flowing in a gravel layer, in a sand layer, in something that's holding up the earth. And so this is kind of a situation where it could collapse. And I was thinking like, what on earth? And I could just stick, I mean, I could stick my whole hand in there, my whole arm up this cavity that it turns out a crab had dug. And it goes back to the value of local knowledge. We had um, some people there working with us and they're like, oh yeah, this is a crab hole like a crab hole what's that and then he went on to explain how people in this area will use crabs to create springs because they dig down for the water they know where the water is uh and so after that reaching my hand further and further into there i started pulling out crab mold pins and it's like oh this is definitely a crab hole <laughs> and then i was asking him you know i wasn't sure is this still good drinking water i was asking this was what really gave me the confidence to go ahead and continue casing the spring as he was saying oh yeah, this is something that people have done for a long time here. And people speak highly of the quality of the water. And so that, that local knowledge and local tradition gave me the confidence to say, okay, yeah, we're going to keep doing what we're doing and um, end up finishing the casing. Amazing. Yeah, I, I just gave a talk on how like you know animals are like biofilters, but they're also indicators. You know, They're telling us so much. Oh, absolutely. I didn't there, you know... One of the big experiences in my life was when I realized that all animals are communicating with each other all the time. It's not with English, it's not with words. When you hear traditional cultures talk about communicating with nature, they're just observing and understanding all the constant communication that's happening in not just the animal world and the plant world and all of it. And so if you can really start to learn and be guided by that, the things that you can create with the landscape are, are truly amazing. So what would you share from, from your experience with Holzer? Um, and I, I'm sure you're probably going to eventually come out with some, some, some videos or a course or something that we all can partake of in English, uh, hopefully. But what would you share with us that is totally Holtzerian that I mean I generally share like one of the first things I share when I when I talk about how Seth Holtzer's method is kind of unique I talk about how he thinks the best plants grow on the poorest soils and people are like whoa what what are you you know and then I start talking about how herbs you know their their medicinal oils are better when they're in a more natural habitat and that may be stony or sandy soil and they may not grow as big and all this, you know, right? So, yeah, absolutely. And, like, for me, like, that, like, resonated so deep because I, I mean, I, I have sprawling gardens. And those of us and the listeners um, who know what, what big gardens are like, you, you have edges, you have areas that don't get really water. They're between the water. You know, you have all these things that happen. And so you have unique things that happen. And so you notice plants that are getting neglected but that are still performing and you save those seeds and you're like, wow, these are special seeds. But what if we did that by design like Seth Holzer is? Like what kind of world, what kind of like food, you know what I mean? Those kind of things. Oh, yeah. 
And so that's usually my entry point, but what can you share with us that, that you have, because you have intimate experience, I have like book and like, you know, some video experience only. I mean, there's so much to share along the lines of what you were just mentioning. Um, you know, I think the doctrine of signatures is really amazing where people start looking at, looking at basically how a plant is growing, why it's growing there, and then relating that to the health of humans and how we can use that plant. Um, but it's, you know, there's just, there, I think the biggest thing that I take from all of it is it's pretty easy to create a landscape where food is just going to be falling on the ground. You don't want weak plants. You want the strongest, most vibrant plants that are going to grow themselves, basically, that you can even be a little bit abusive towards. And those are the really valuable plants. And so, if, you know, if we had everyone, I look at people like Joseph Simcox, and if he's bringing these different sought-after indigenous species, people could be propagating those and making just the hardiest, most resistant food that you just throw it in the ground and it's there forever. Uh, and I think moving towards cultivation of those types of species is really going to help improve food security. But there's, you know, I think one of the, one of the big things, just a simple, succinct way that I talk about the way that Zep works is if you hear permaculture is called a design science. I really think that what Zep does is more of an awareness art where instead of thinking logically first, you're almost thinking with your intuition first. And you're receiving the different information that you're getting from the landscape. So you're, you're aware of what's happened, historical context, things like this just from looking at the landscape, the plants you see, the things that you see within it then figuring out how to massage that into the goals of the project uh, and create something that's going to hold more water because water is the source of all life. And so if you can increase the water retention in the landscape, you're going to increase the productivity and the life of the landscape. Um, so, you know, that's, I, that's the biggest thing is his use and view of water is definitely the biggest thing that I take away from all my time and said. So I'm looking at this 125,000 gallons of water in less than two hours on your yeah. side. <laughs> the rain came down that hard? Oh, it was, I mean, it was a river in the spots where we had created spillways. If you imagine, so we had a patty, it wasn't complete yet, with a four-inch pipe in it, basically a four-inch monk. And that four-inch monk was full and the water level was rising it was actually shooting out with pressure and it ended up rising and coming out the overflow spillway just from a, I believe it was a four hour rain, but you know, an immense amount of water in a short period of time. Basically one section where a terrace was taking water from a pretty large area to the pond, that was a waterfall basically. And so whenever it rains really hard in this property, they're gonna have a waterfall cascading into the pond essentially. Aerating it, wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So, how did you get this assignment, and 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 how how vast was it? Because I see I see this pond. It looks like it was in an earlier day than the crab casing. Were you doing numerous ponds on one site, or was it multiple sites? It was it was one site. It's a fifty five hectare farm, uh, and so we we're probably only working within 20 acres of that, everything included the spring casings, and we probably did earthworks on maybe eight acres, basically. It's a very steep property, 
and it has a couple of lomas. And so I had gone down there almost two years ago on the initial consultation. I uh, spent almost a month down there walking the property, macheting through it. At this point, you know, it was kind of a property that was left for quite a long time, I believe 10 years or something. And then this family purchased it. And so we we're looking at what spots they should develop. We ended up choosing kind of a main home site. Um, then I left, they put in the road to that main home site that we had surveyed. And then once they were ready, they brought me back to do the first big phase of earthworks where on this Loma, we essentially, we put in three building sites, one for their main lodge, because uh, this will be kind of an agro-tourism center over time, one for their cabin, one for uh, what's going to be a really amazing lookout tower for both bird watching, yoga, classes, um, and then we're able to case three springs for drinking water, one spring for the aquaculture system, do about a kilometer of terraces, the 20 by 30 meter pond that you see, and two patties all within a month, essentially. Amazing. So how much do you love your job? Uh, pretty much the most ever. <laughs> I mean, you're doing the most good you could possibly do on this planet. You're, you're doing it, you know? Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I just got to thank Zeph. I mean, he showed me the blueprint. He showed how to do it. I, he's, I think he's one of the most amazing people I've met, certainly within my life. Um, but I, I couldn't love it more. I'm doing literally exactly what I want to be doing pretty much every day of my life. And I work, you know, I work super hard, six, seven days a week, long hours when I have to. Finally getting to the point where I can travel and enjoy some of these places I'm working in as well, which is nice. Um, but yeah, I don't think I could love it more. <laughs> that is so wonderful. And I feel like a lot of the people in permaculture feel the same way. And, Absolutely. And, and, and I feel like I feel like as permaculture matures, it's really going to have to adopt a lot of Holzerian methods. And I feel like there's going to be, you know, slews of people just trying to do reductionism on, you know, on Sep's, like, things. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, now, <laughs> how did the hog respond as he went through that paddock. I need a number. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it reminds me of what Masanuba Fukuoka said. He said, even permaculture is too reductionist. And in a lot of ways, that's like what Bill Mollison was saying initially. And that's what, you know, the intro of, the, of his book is. It's like, we're in this moment. We're all reductionists. We need to, like, try to be holistic. And I, and, and I think that's what it is. We need to have children who grow up in these systems. Like, Sep grew up absorbing these and that's why he has these like inarticulatables or these these kind of things that people don't readily grasp outside the context of sep maybe mm -hmm. absolutely uh, and, and i think the reduction approach it just doesn't work for holster's methods i i know one thing that people are constantly frustrated with during workshops with him is he will be specifically vague quite often because it's so situational what he would do, I mean, what he would do in one situation might be seemingly the opposite to an untrained eye in a different situation, all based on context. And so when you try and reduce it to, okay, what can I do here? Sometimes there's not an answer for that except from nature. And so he, a lot of people end up kind of frustrated trying to learn from him because he doesn't just give you the answer. He's more of a coyote teacher. 
or you answer questions with a question. And you, you have to train in the person the mentality to think in the right way rather than just preparing them with this reductionist blueprint of this is how to do this thing. Right, that kind of reminds me of, of how we need to let the land kind of suggest to us what it needs and open... Like, I, I, a lot of the time when I work with seed, I work with uh, three times of the variety that I end up with at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Because I'm planting that variety and then observing what responds and then, you know, either mulching or chopping and dropping or just letting it, you know, atrophy underneath the, the weight of the other uh, thing. You know what I mean? And so and so I think that's that's really critical is, is opening ourselves to the answer that is already there in the, the, or, or, or po- level. It's really just a, a set of possibilities, right? And probabilities that are like coursing through each area with like sets of energies, and we just have to figure out how to align ourselves to those things to get what what we want to happen. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and like you're saying, you know, you're you're putting out specifically more than is going to last at the end of it, and you're letting nature those conditions that year you're letting the landscape guide what happens and then you're just making these micro directions uh, within that to select certain things or I think a lot of times people get tied up in analysis paralysis of well you know I have to know exactly where each tree is going to be 50 years from now before I plant it I so prefer the strategy of don't overthink it plant more than you're going to have and cut it and thin it to what you want based on the landscape, based on the conditions, based on the climate, based on all the factors that unfold throughout the lifetime of those organisms. So to that end, the opposite of that would be like the city, right? So what, what would you do if I gave you San Francisco to fix? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's quite the challenge. But, you know, there is, there is so many great urban examples. I think the first thing that I would do is start looking at how to turn waste streams into food. Uh, Zep has some beautiful ideas and concepts for living walls and apartment buildings. I mean, if you think of all the, all the waste that could become really rich soil, not even talking about effluent, which is a whole other problem and could be dealt with well, um, but just kitchen scrap waste that could actually go on to balcony garden beds where instead of importing soil and importing all these things, you're generating the soil in the beds from the waste and then growing food hanging off the balcony. Now you're actually shading and providing air conditioning to a lot of the buildings. Um, You're protecting them. You're starting to develop a biology within the city. And I, I think there are certainly ways to green cities pretty rapidly, um, pretty cheaply, and in a way that people are going to generally enjoy. It just takes a little bit of effort from the people, and oftentimes in cities, they don't have spare time or spare effort uh, to be putting into things like this. Absolutely. You know, I was talking, I did a talk about, you know, how to fix California on Thursday, and I was talking about how we really need to stop letting insane people design our toilets. Because um, it's insane to lean over a toilet that doesn't have a top and flush a toilet with your hand that everyone else touched. When in Europe, you know, they have foot pedals for that sort of thing. 
Um, and just wasting so much water to carry away something that, I mean, particularly with urine, that's very easy to deal with and it's very nutrient rich. It's actually most of the minerals um, that plants would actually be looking for. To be wasting clean drinking water with that constantly, that just, it hurts my heart. I mean, to see the way that cities manage water, and even in places like Ecuador, I mean, I would see these cities where a nice river comes through. It could be the feature of the city, you know? It's this tourist city in the Amazon. They could have it coming through all these beautiful fountains. I mean, it could actually be a significant attraction of the city, but it's basically used as the town dump man and so just every all, trash is constantly going into it all the hard surface runoff is constantly just wasting away I mean there's so many ways to improve it and cities are just such an environmental catastrophe from the hydrological cycle I think that's the part that gets me the most so so I have a question for you so do we really have an unemployment problem anywhere in this world no absolutely not <laughs> I mean, there's so much to do. Everyone could have jobs. And I think as this approach, you know, the thing that I love, and granted, what you put out there is what you get back. So I interact with a select group of people, but every person that I talk to, if I explain this in words that they understand and kind of grasping onto their values and how that correlates to this, everyone wants it from, you know, the the poor bums living in a city in Ecuador to the people with fancy homes up in the hills. And so if you can get this in front of enough people, get enough people behind it, really we just have to reevaluate what we value. And there's going to be so much work for the next hundred years getting us out of the predicament that we're currently in. Yeah, and I think that once we get all these things in place, especially if we do it at a large enough scale, the result within five to six years is going to create such optimism. It's going to be this pandemic swelling of optimism, and it's going to fuel it in such a beautiful way. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for dropping by. You know what? Before you go, you got to tell us what your next project is. What are you working on next? Um, next, so I've got to go check in on a project that I can't say much about in California. Secret, um, secret. It is a project of Zeps uh, that I help out with. And then I go to some consultations in Slovenia and Bulgaria, and I'm going to go visit Zep and some other Holzer students, Judith Onger uh, and the Wilderness Culture Hof in Austria. How about there for a little bit, and then I come back, I teach at Permaculture Voices, um, and then I go visit a project in Africa, do a talk in Canada, and then I start projects that will be mostly stateside with some of these consultations. Oh, and I have to sneak in a trip to Colombia as well. Um, but I, you know, I'm really excited. A lot of the projects that I'm taking on, they want to start developing kind of this low-income housing farm worker component to it. Uh, which I'm particularly interested in kind of setting up eco-developments where there would be a family that lived, oh, it would be several families, 10, maybe 20 families that would live on this, you know, 500,000 acre property. Then there would also be low-income housing for people running the farm. The families just want to live on a farm. They don't want to do the work of the farm itself, but they want to eat that food. They want to live in that connection with their landscape. Um, 
so I'm, I'm really that's that's my it's my next project my next big project that's huge trying to put together amazing so with all this world travel I mean I see you, you went to you, you were at Amherst uh, on the east coast I'm from the East Coast. I went. I, I was at school at NYU, but I grew up in New England, so in Vermont and New Hampshire. So, with all this world travel, what do you what, what do you feel that that you've gotten out of that you can share with the rest of us, either to encourage us to travel or encourage us to think about in lieu of traveling? You know, it's really beautiful. The biggest thing by far that I've gotten from traveling is. And particularly going to places that aren't developed nations or well-developed nations is that everyone's happy. You know, people have a lot less, <laughs> a lot less than people in particularly the United States, yet they're a lot happier. They're happy. They're joking around, smiling, laughing all the time. You know, it's like they have rice beans and the two fish that they caught on the river for dinner that night. And they're going to be offended if you don't take one of those fish for dinner. Um, so it's just such a refreshing culture and attitude. I really love South America. I've only been to Ecuador, but I can't wait to visit more because people already live a lot closer with the landscape. And so I think, and they already have a lot of reverence and appreciation for the naturaleza down in Ecuador. Uh, and so it's getting this kind of information and approach to places like that, I think, is where it can really make the most good because it's giving people really stable, steady, happy lives uh, and the people that are most willing to make some changes within their life to change their situation a little bit. That is awesome. Like I said, I... You must love it. You must love it. It sounds like <laughs> your it sounds like your ambitions are to do more and more good and to spread the a model of doing good so that your good will will exponentially spread and that is just so powerful. Yeah, and I, that's one of the other big takeaways from Zach is you just have to leave behind demonstration sites. And when people can go visit and see those demonstration sites, I went to Tamara as well when I was in Europe this time. Whoa! <laughs> like, amazing. I mean, some of the most incredible things that I've seen, they, they're a vegan community, but they have the best animal relationship. I have witnessed this lady has actually trained pigs to eat certain things and root around and not touch other things. And so it's actually to the point where they can put them in an orchard and the pigs won't touch the baby fruit trees, but they rip up all the blackberries and all the things that they want them to go after. And when you leave behind examples and places of things like that, you know, it's just, it's this glowing gem of possibility that people see and it speaks for itself. You know, you don't, if you can just leave behind a bunch of those in different places, I don't see a way you could be doing um, better good as far as spreading the word for it because the proof is really in the landscape not in talking about it not in videos about it i mean they went from having a borehole oops, sorry about that a deep borehole that didn't produce enough water for gardens it didn't produce enough it barely produced enough water for the community to having a surplus of water having these huge lakes 
having tons of water for gardens and food, and now being on a shallow well for the community and springs that are being recharged with the earthworks they're doing. Uh, so when you can leave behind examples like this, that's a shining bright example as long as humans don't screw it up. So we can really outlive, outlive you, I think potentially until the next ice age if you really do it properly. Amazing. I, I, I want to meet those pigs. Do you know what kind they were? Uh, I think they're I think they're the black hooved the same that they use for the Hamon and Garica in Portugal um, and it's actually interesting so she got two boars two castrated boars I believe not sure about that um, that she trained that she basically lived with for the first few weeks of their life and then they had a wild pig come in and join these two boars and the two boars actually taught the wild pig to do the same things and to not touch the fruit trees. Uh, so now that they've got the pigs trained, it's actually easier to train other pigs. And the fact that they were able to teach a wild boar, that the wild boar wanted to live there, and that they were able to teach it to do the same practices. I mean, the things that we could be doing with the other animals and the other beings on this planet, it could be such a beautiful, rich relationship uh, and I think as people get exposed to that, they're really going to desire that. I desire that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> oh, man. I, oh. Yeah, you know what? To have a magical relationship with, with, with my animals, I'd go vegan again. That's for sure. Holy cow. <laughs> you know, I had a pig, that, that uh, this American guinea hog, that would go with me through the garden and would weed because it would just eat the grasses and it wouldn't eat my, my veggies. I didn't think much of it, but um, but I'm sure we're not talking about like a, a mini pig, because I mean like these were big pigs. And yeah, one of the most amazing things. I mean, when she gave her little whistle call, <laughs> I have never seen a pig move so quickly. I mean, they just love her. You can see very clearly how much they love her. Oh, um, that's so sweet. And you know, she actually, if it was up to her she would have a lot more of them and have them working a lot more and actually be using that protein and fat at times when they need. Um, but it's one of the things that comes with, you know, when you get a larger community together, it's not just what one person wants, it's what the entire community wants. And so it moves things a little bit slower, which is why I also love one of the parts of the developments that I want to do. You can basically put in regenerate the ecosystem immediately around it and then put in a bunch of people in control of it so it'll necessarily develop slow um, so there's not going to be a lot of earth moving after that initial thing so it gives it the system a chance to develop and become what it can really be before anyone would potentially want to disturb it and that's why it's so critical that you use the large uh, the large equipment because I mean I do things with just a shovel and uh, I have to do things in stages, you know, and let the land, like, open up deeper and then, like, cut in deeper. And... But that's the best way to learn, too. I mean, it's very difficult, relatively difficult, to tell different types of materials sitting inside an excavator. And if you don't know the different types of material from working with it with a shovel and with your hands, you're not going to be able to grasp it with the machine. And so you're actually going to end up doing a lot of damage with the machine, even though you're trying to help. Uh, and so, and Zep talks about this often. I mean, the importance 
for people at whatever stage in their life. If you didn't do it as a kid, you got to do it as an adult to really play in the mud, to work with the earth, and to start to understand the different characteristics of different types. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think that um, that rewilding theme that's been going around is totally spot on with that. I, I think that, you know... Sep was unschooled. You know, his teacher was nature as a child. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to give that to my kids. Uh, I think that I need to be in a, uh, a more developed ecosystem, I feel like. But we, we travel up like uh, up further up the hill, and, and Yosemite's definitely still developed in areas. But, you know, man, just the scene, the, the richness, the, the, the depth of the green, and... The kind of nature that you're working with, I mean, for someone in the city, it's got to just be, like, they, they just got to be just green with envy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they also don't know, I mean, the bugs mean business down in Ecuador. <laughs> you know, That's it's not true. all funny That's game. true. We just the first to... time I went down there, I had swollen, because I would wear shorts, everyone wears pants because of the bugs. But I, I had a line in between my boots and my shorts that was swollen and still, like, red from being bitten a month later. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's amazing, but it's, you got to work yourself into it. I've played in the woods all my life, and so I'll, you know, I'll go climb a mountain at 11 p.m. and summit at dawn, and that's, like, fairly comfortable. You can't just go from city to middle, middle of the Amazon. It's going to be too much. So it's kind of about getting these gradual progressions. Uh, but you mentioned the rewilding. I love that so much. I mean, it's just, there's one story I wish I could share, but I just can't from Zap. But I mean, he really, it's like his place was almost considered a zoo at times. Not at all like a zoo, but because of the animals he had. He had mountain goats, he had lynx, he had bears, he had bison. I mean, he really was bringing back the wild genetics to a farm ecosystem. Wait, and so I, I love bears? that concept. I plan on doing that and promoting that as much as I can to all the people on my projects. So he brought in bears? I, I'm pretty sure he had bears at one point. I don't think that's in any of the books. Uh, I know oh. he had lynx. That's the one I wish I could share a little bit more about, but I can't. Uh, wow. But he had mountain goats at one point. I mean, they still have... In the mountain goat experiment, that didn't work. I mean, for all of Zep's successes, he probably had 10 failures. And that's why he's such an amazing person and teacher, because he has all of this experience. The other thing is you can't be scared of failure. There's, there's a lot of fear of failure, and fear in general. And fear is the worst companion in life. But if you can get over the fear of failure and get to this attitude of fail better where you're just going to, you know, you're going to witness the failure and then you're going to figure out how to improve, it opens up a lot of these possibilities. Uh, and so, I mean, he had bison and then bison became really popular and then all of his neighbors started keeping bison and so it became less profitable and so he moved on to the next thing. And that's how you keep it enjoyable and interesting. You're always learning about a new animal. You're always working in different situations. You're not just developing a blueprint that works and doing it infinitely, where where would be the enjoyment of that? Uh, and so this concept of the farmer being the soul of the people, if we can kind of heal the farmer, we'll also be healing the people. 
Wow. So I was I, I've been I've been talking about how to fix California, and I've been saying that we need to bring back the Grizzlies, you know, our state flag, right? And then we need to bring back wolves. Yeah. Oh, I mean the wolf reintroduction to Yellowstone. That was the first thing that really got me into ecology. I think I saw it on National Geographic or something. I ended up going to the school where the people who had done that research are teachers. And it, I mean, it's amazing what the reintroduction of the keystone species can do. And if you think of all the species that do such amazing things for the landscape, the wolves, the beavers, that we've deliberately eradicated from the landscape, if we were to just allow them to come back, they'd start healing it on their own. Uh, it's just a matter of us getting out of the way. Absolutely. And I think uh, for us to slow down, I think there's a lot of a lot of this these games that we play that are completely unnecessary. And like you said, you know, having less stuff, that's a bit of the slowing down, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only way we're going to hear and interact with nature is by getting on to that wavelength. And I think a lot of that requires us to slow down. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a progression. You can't just go from zero to 100. Like, for example, there's plenty of stories as well in the Yellowstone ecosystem. One particularly heinous story is a mother, and this is just from people lacking a connection and understanding of the landscape, but she slathered honey all over her son's face, little child, and sent him walking down towards the grizzly bear to get a picture of the grizzly bear licking the honey off of the kid's face. Of course, grizzly bear maws kid, people kill grizzly bear, and it's like, that's not the bear's fault. That's clearly and definitely the human's fault. But so rewilding has to be done in a very delicate manner. Uh, And there's still a huge wolf controversy in people that want to just shoot them all. Um, But a lot of it is fear and manipulation of truth and a lack of connection with nature. Once you're aware, I mean, I've seen so many bears and wolves and all sorts of animals that people would be scared of. They're not going to do anything to you unless if you're emitting the wrong frequencies, essentially. And so, but when people aren't aware of that, and if you were to just try and go up and walk up to a grizzly bear, it's probably not going to end up with the result you're going for. So it's about, just like you mentioned, getting kids to have these experiences with other organisms, with the natural cycles, with nature, and learn those things at an early age so that now they can be educated, conscious, and productive adults. One of the first things that Zepp said to me, uh, having dinner with him at the first big project that I went to uh, in Montana, was when children are raised in tune with nature, when those children become politicians, the silent revolution is complete. And I think that's the only way it's going to happen. People are going to get reconnected with the truth that's out there, and then you're going to start to see things change. You can't start it with the change without having the human context right there along with it. I agree. The problem is social, so the solution is social. Absolutely. And that's, you know, what I, if I, when I explain to people my elevator pitch for my business at this point, simply is to improve my client's relationship with their landscape or nature or different things, environment, depending on who I'm talking to. Uh, but basically the world around us, the living world around us in particular. 
And so if I can be going around and improving that, you know, that's a job well done. And there's many different ways to do that. I mean, I look at the type of nature awareness. I mean, Ben Falk was telling me about this school that he did where they go and in community live for a week as if they're in the Stone Age and they bring some food and they bring tools that they had made throughout this whole primitive skills course. But if people can start doing that more and more and start to get in tune with the wild animal that is human, things are really going to start moving in a positive direction. Well, because anything's possible at that point. That's what the whole uh, cold shower challenge thing is about. You know, people feel empowered when they can go take a shower that's just cold and it's like it's this horrible thing, right? But it's <laughs> really, you can overcome it and you know you can. But when you do that, you psychologically like put yourself in a place where, you, you know, you're unstoppable. And I think that's yeah, what, uh, when you pair with nature and you're really in tune with nature, you feel the power of nature. And if you're on that side, you feel empowered. Oh, absolutely. Empowered and connected. And you have all the bounty that is nature. You have all the sun working for things that are going to benefit you, all the water, all the wind. I mean, you're harvesting all of these natural things all around you. That's just the richest, most vibrant life I can imagine. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Zach, for joining us. Yeah, definitely. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the work you do as well, Matt. You've got a beautiful energy about you, so happy to help out anytime. Well, I appreciate it, and hopefully we can have you back on to share uh, further on in your adventures. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, have a wonderful day. Yeah, you too. talking to Zach. I met him for the first time at Permaculture Voices 2, PV2. And, you know, ever since then, I've been watching his adventures and he is just on fire and he's doing so much good in the world. It's so inspiring. And I hope that you got inspired today during the episode. And I hope that you feel like you can go out into the world and do something great. All right. Have a wonderful weekend and lots more podcasts to come. <laughs>